Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to our first guest, Tamashi Jackson, some housekeeping. Each week, we publish as many images of the artworks discussed on each program as possible on manpodcast.com. We've recently started adding the Instagram account of the guest or the guests to the show page. Mine's there, too. Be sure to check that out and to follow the artists, curators, and historians who come on the program. Also, thanks to the listeners who have been telling their friends about the program and delivering crucial five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts in the last few weeks. The Moonlit Nest wrote that the program is, quote, soothing, inspiring, and educational, which is much of what we go for. And The Brush and the Compass expressed gratitude for the, quote, inspiration and specific knowledge our guests deliver. I'm grateful for that, too. Please add your own review if you get a chance. Thanks much. On to Tamashi Jackson. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University in Columbus is showing Tamashi Jackson Love Roller Coaster, an exhibition of five new paintings that address disenfranchisement and voter suppression in Ohio's black communities. The exhibition was originally conceived by Michael Goodson and was curated by Kristen Helmick Brunet, Dion Custer Edwards, and Megan Cavanaugh. It's on view through December 27th. Jackson is also included in States of Mind, Art and American Democracy at the Moody Center for the Arts at Rice University in Houston. The exhibition investigates how artists have addressed issues that are before the nation this very election season, including equality, voting access, gun control, and immigration policy. The show is curated by Alinka Baroto, along with Julia Fisher and Julia Kidd. It's on view through December 19th. Jackson's work often examines the relationship between politics, race, history, and aesthetics, most often in ways that emphasize how history has created the present. She's previously had solo exhibitions at Kennesaw State and Michigan State Universities, and soon she'll have solo exhibitions at the Parrish Art Museum and the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. Her work is in the collections of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, and the Baltimore Museum of Art. On the second segment, I'll be talking with curator Stephen Wicks about Buford Delaney and James Baldwin. But first, Tamashi Jackson, after the break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. This fall, visit the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University to view Tamashi Jackson, Love Roller Coaster, five new paintings centered on themes of voter suppression in Ohio's black communities. Also open now, Gretchen Bender's aggressive witness active participant, Steve McQueen's seldom-seen neon series Remember Me, Taryn Simon's sound installation Assembled Audience, and the Micro Cinema and Community Resource Lounge Free Space. 
the latest edition of the Political Advertisement Project from Antoni Muntadas and Marshall Reese debuts October 26th. All can be experienced safely at the WEX through December 27th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Exploring the trajectory of abstract art made during the 20th century, Small Abstractions at Sheldon Museum of Art highlights a great strength of the museum's holdings and explores moments when color, line, geometry, and gesture, not figural form, serve as the subject of painting. Often associated with large canvases and dynamic brushwork, abstract art in America, as seen in this installation, took on many forms, including instances where artists chose deliberately to work on a smaller scale. The exhibition includes work by synchronists Stanton MacDonald Wright and Morgan Russell, members of the American abstract artists such as Burgoyne Diller, Alice Trumbull Mason, Ad Reinhardt, and Joseph Albers, as well as Pearl Fine and Nicholas Carone, known for their participation in abstract expressionism's The Club. Small Abstractions highlights the rhythms and geometries that this group of artists employed to formulate their own interpretation of non-figural or abstract art. For more information on Small Abstractions, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And we're back. Tamashi Jackson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Your work has addressed racist policy and violence and the links between the two for a little while now, and we'll be talking about that. But for every reason under the sun, given that it's early October 2020, I think we should start with voting and voting in elections policy. When did you decide that the most fundamental act of the American form of democracy was something you wanted to make work about, and then I guess also to show show in a major contemporary art venue in the middle of a major state capital, in the middle of a major state university during election season? So in 2018, going into 2019, my research was focused on the history of housing dispossession and displacement in New York City. I had come across a couple of articles from Kings County politics that focused on a rising scandal in Brooklyn around the third party transfer program being used by the de Blasio administration to take possession of fully paid for properties only in black and brown neighborhoods that were in the throes of rapid and extreme gentrification. One of the neighborhoods I lived in in Crown Heights, as I was uh, studying there in New York at Cooper Union. During those last three years, I lived in Crown Heights in Bedford-Stuyvesant. And so that stuck out to me that the reporters were talking about the lives and homes of people who lived around the corner from where I lived. Kelly Mena, Stephen Witt, and Shubasa Berg were the two journalist writers and the photojournalists that were covering the story. And at the time, there were only two articles. It ended up becoming a suite of something like 12 or 15, maybe more articles as this, as the scandal expanded with their coverage. But these articles were harrowing. One in particular about a woman named Marlene Saunders and her family that she's owned this house outright since, I don't know, 1980 something. And she and her family made an attempt to, you know, pay their regular, I don't know, like water bill or property taxes or something like that. And they were made aware that the property was now in the hands of a 
of a third party developer and that if she and if and if she wanted to stay there she would have to pay rent to this like not for profit or something like that 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 the house had been seized so yeah it was pretty terrifying and she wasn't the only one people started coming forward more and more in this neighborhood and in other neighborhoods as this was happening to them and they were finding out that it was happening to other people and i just remember reading that and immediately thinking of what little i knew about seneca village the black village that was raised for the creation of central park so that's kind of like an emotional cue for me when i'm looking at something or hearing about something hearing a story about something and i have like an immediate historic visceral reaction like I, I see I see a link, a pattern link with a story from another time or maybe another place or of another people. And in this case it was it was all in New York. So I'd already started obsessing over the journalism of uh Mena, Witt and Berg and wanting to, to learn more about Seneca Village. What I knew was like very, very little, but I but I knew that a whole enclave of black property owners, mostly pre- predominantly black property owners in antebellum New York, had been abused by what I can- later came to learn as an extraordinary innovation in eminent domain that ended up really coloring the way that it's used now. It had never it had never been used in such a way to dispossess and displace an entire community that way. We end up seeing it now as as something that is horrifying, but it's not so surprising. At the time, it was an innovation. So I had already started down that road, and I was invited to teach at my alma mater, or to facilitate, rather, at my alma mater at Cooper Union. And that was a godsend because I love that library, and I love the people in that library. And I immediately went to Claire and Dale at the library and asked for help as soon as I hit the ground finding information about Seneca Village and about Antebellum New York. So they they guided me to a number of books that are in our collection at Cooper Union. And what ended up being really transformative was The Park and the People, published in 1996, Cornell University Press, Elizabeth Blackmore. Their text was the first to acknowledge that there had been a, that there had been people there before that there had been a village there before. And it's in, I think it's chapter three, the references to Seneca Village are, it's, it's, it's like rather brief considering how much research and work has been done on this since then. But it was groundbreaking in 1996 that there had been all of this work, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 landscape architecture, architecture in general, the, the creation of parks, Central, Central Park as, as this like, you know, crown jewel that influences the design of parks all over the country that there had never, ever been any acknowledgement of, of Black homeownership and the connection to Black homeownership and suffrage, Black suffrage, right in the heart of New York City that was just completely dismantled for the creation of this park for, for pleasure. And that there had been another location proposed and that was being like fought for, for this, for this park, for the city. And like all of the wheeling and dealing that was done to change the vision to where it ended up being located and how that influenced the movement of like major capital and residential uh, real estate speculation in the city. So I was like really caught up in that, really, really caught up in that. And that culminated in my second solo show at Tilton Gallery, which is called Time Out of Mind, a nod to Steely Dan and my favorite my favorite song that my mother and I used to sing together from that album that was published in 1980, the year I was born, just special to me. And then also my presentation in the 2019 Whitney Biennial. All of that work was about that. So when that was complete, I knew that the next questions that the next natural questions that I had were going to be about uh, the electoral process. So can I, can I, before, before you go on, is that specifically because of 
your experience in studying Central Park and Seneca Village then? It came right out of that? Yeah, I mean, that's where my head was. I got to become close during that time with uh, the journalists. I, if, I, you know, I, I was totally starstruck. And I remember the, the nights of excitement when they started responding to my messages on IG. And we I'm like, oh, my God, you know, Kelly Meta responded. Oh, my God. And they came to my studio and we talked. And, you know, a part of that story, a, part, a big part of that story from the 1800s and the present had to do with elected representatives involved with business and real estate actors making decisions about who can live where and how they will benefit. And of course, all of this is framed by uh, these racist ideologies of human value and expendability. So like that's, you know, pulsing like blood vessel linking these narratives of like who gets abused. Like ev everyone's integrity is ultimately impacted by such abuse because selective humanism allows for like a rationalized abuse here, rationalized abuse there. Eventually the whole ideological project of like the American dream is, is only further destabilized. You know, it's just, just dishonesty and, and, and refusal to atone. So that's where my head was. And, you know, elected, elected officials had all sorts of things to do with both of these stories especially being that in the in the in the present day it, the the third party transfer system as as I was doing this work and the and their journalism continued Old de Blasio even declared that he was doubling down on the use of the third party transfer program and some of the things that they discovered were that there were things that again innovations of the innovations of oppression like things that had never happened before like cluster cluster foreclosures were happening so people people who people didn't even know that their homes were being foreclosed on like, like if, if one house was identified by developer uh, actors as like vulnerable to this process, the entire neighborhood was then being looked at. It was revealed that whole clusters of homes were being approved to enter this foreclosure process and thrust into the third party transfer program, unbeknownst to the homeowners themselves. It was moving faster than they could be alerted. So my next natural thought about a body of work was was that it would be about the electoral process. I don't know if I was thinking far 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 enough out to think that that the new work would land right at the mouth of this November election. I just knew that, that those were the next questions that I should start asking. So as you begin thinking about the electoral process and and democracy, there is a long history of American artists addressing both republicanism and the electoral process in their work. There are there's of course George Caleb Bingham's uh, who, who was himself an elected official, uh, Secretary of State in Missouri. His many paintings about elections, for example, but also painters like Sanford Gifford and Frederick Church and John Kensett and their bunch constructed the American landscape tradition in ways that very often used mountains and other features in the terrain to celebrate American republicanism. Given that at least one of the graduate programs from which you came, Yale, points artists art history a good bit, did you study any of that? Did you think of updating a long tradition of American artists addressing elections through a contemporary address of the racism at the core of much of present American election law? No, I didn't. When I was the, the artists who influenced my thinking about public space really go back to the public art in the San Francisco Bay Area that influenced me was not purely for decoration. 
they were always telling people stories. And the people who ended up mentoring me during that time, Juan Alicia, Emmanuel C. Montoya, Susan Cervantes, Presida Eyes Art Center, Elba Rivera, Edith Boone. In Los Angeles, I was really obsessed with Noniola BC and Roderick Sykes and Kent Twitchell. The, 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 these like larger than life, completely immersive public paintings, almost always, they always had something to do with how politics influenced and shaped the experience of public space for common people. When I was at Cooper, I started to learn about people like Alfredo Yar. I started to learn about group material. I got to study with Doug Ashford at Cooper. I got to hear Alfredo Yar speak, like sitting on the floor under a table in a tiny classroom in the foundation building, because he was very close friends with, uh, with Dory Ashton, the renowned art historian who was my um, professor of modernism and other stuff. I remember during that time, Michael Corris had just finished his research and published his book about Ad Reinhardt. That was really uh, the, the, the talk that he gave at Interdisciplinary Seminar really um, influenced my thinking around how modernist artists or artists who were classified, classified under the modernist movement in the New York school, how they too were people who were deeply invested in the ongoings of public space and politics. Oh, yeah. And of course, Barnett Newman, who ran, who ran for mayor of the city of New York. And, and it was helpful to be with Dory because these were her friends about whom she could speak intimately and casually about like what their what their personal ideologies were, you know, like what got talked about over a pint of beer in the same area where we were going to school, <laughs> you know, where all these things had happened, where all these discussions had happened. So I felt I started to feel, especially when I heard Alfredo Yard talk about the studies on happiness, I remember like getting goosebumps all over my body and feeling like super affirmed that there were, you know, like cutting edge contemporary artists with links to public space that were that were driven by the plight of of other people, of people beyond themselves and 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 beyond the notion of the singular genius in the studio alone making paintings that were only referential to their to their own like concerns. And also, you know, Alfredo, uh, who I ended up studying with while taking classes at Harvard when I came up here to go to MIT, he was an architect first. So I was also like really fascinated with the role of the built environment in shaping how people see and what we see. And of course, you know, spending like, what is it, like uh, three or four years climbing scaffolding on buildings, mostly in California and other places in the country when, when I was taken along for trips. I was like thinking very practically about the built environment, the nature of the surface, the surfaces of buildings and altering them. And of course, you know, the uh, Rivetta uh, Siqueiros and Orozco and John Biggers, like that's just like where my head was. So then when I got to New York and I was actually studying with architects and, you know, thinking about how objects were made, how objects that are that are like that become a part of like the structural reality that people experience. I, I think about art in those terms. Like for me, visual art has always existed inside of inside of me in those like large terms. So when I heard Alfredo speak about the studies on happiness that he did in Chile during the during the dictatorship was really I was like okay yeah all right all right all right I'm not crazy you know I'm not crazy I'm not crazy this is this is it I also was able to study with Walid Rod at Cooper Union and so conversations conversations with him and doing um independent study with Doug all of this was like super affirming as I was still trying to figure out my relationship to painting that really drove me into printmaking. And printmaking, of course, is historically, the, the, the nature of publication is about multiplicity, the spreading of information and people. And very core 
terms, I was like, you know, I was like driven to driven driven to consider the creation of the printing press and how uh, text through the line first that text and image become transformed and accessible and as integral as a building to shaping the ideas of people and responding to the experiences of people as we all move through public space. Whether or not we feel like linked to or responsible for the larger public, we are all implicated. Well, I will tell you why I had guessed you might have. In the 1850s and 60s, one of the most prevalent metaphors in American painting was reflection, a mountain or a forest reflected in water which was artists following a dictate from Emerson who had established reflection as a perfect metaphor through which Americans could use nature and landscape to address the country. The American government was a reflection of the American people who, or at least the white male American people, who elected that government. And so painters then take that reflection metaphor from Emerson and and then use it in paintings of the Catskills and the White Mountains and the mountains reflected in the water and all that. So your, you know, when I, last year when I saw your make two black property owners look like one, which presents a horizontal air quotes reflection, it occurred to me you might be consciously updating and turning 90 degrees, both literally and metaphorically, (laughs) the American Republican reflection construct. Yeah, I mean, it fits. It wasn't conscious, though. It's funny you should mention that one. I think I felt at the time like it was the best thing that I had ever made. And I feel really fortunate to get to feel that so often. It's not a given because I don't like everything. Let's see, I was working at the Blackburn print shop with a master printer, John Williams. And make two black, black property owners look like one, a limited value exercise. That was a limited value exercise. And we printed that in the shop small area for silkscreen in the back. You know, the, the Blackburn shop is really, really about litho. That was printed on this very thin, almost tissue paper that I had been holding on to since my time at Yale. A dear friend and fellow student rep, Alterance Gumby, was our class rep at the time. And we didn't have flat files when we got there, when I got there. And I really begged Alterant to somehow get us some flat files. And he's a really, he's also, he's a person of the people. And I don't know how he did it or who he spoke to, but he ended up getting a set of flat files donated to the School of Art from the Sterling Library that was undergoing like reorganization and reconstruction. And they came to us filled with paper that was like, I don't know how long it had been there. Like, you know, old, old, beautiful, perfectly preserved paper that was unused. And so I had, I had been carrying some of that around, and that's what became the the surface for for that piece. It was super fragile, you know, to make, and it just it, it was just perfect. Just felt like it was perfect. It was it was the closest I had come to to really like using two images from two different eras in two slightly different reds, two slightly different colors, in half tone lines that were discernible to collapse just enough to initiate a cross hatching, which I which for me formally instigates an act of drawing, onto this like semi translucent paper. And yeah, you know, it's like the the like being uh re re entering interaction of color as more of an adult. Cause I feel like for most of us that go to art school, foundation year Foundation year, wherever we are, wherever in the world we are, includes uh, color, the study of color theory. Albers, Itten, and whoever else we're supposed to be learning about. 
And when I got to Yale, I, I studied color with the painter and educator Anoka Faruqi, who's one of the most like reliable, <laughs> like reliably like on it holders of Albert's history of movement and pedagogy and color theory through painting. And it shows up in her work like very clearly. And she was taking us line by line through interaction of color. We were actually the first class to use the, what was like, a, you know, very controversial, the iPad version of interaction of color to do the whole, to do the whole course of study. So I had been trying, really trying to, really trying to articulate the collapse that I was seeing in language around value and limited notions, notions of limited value and to, to make two colors look like one to make one color look like two and so on. I had been really trying to find the perfect images, the perfect archival images to drop into that logic of color interaction. And I felt like that, that one piece was the most perfect execution of that, of that effort. So the new work in Ohio, when you decide to address an event, whether it's the raising of Seneca Village in the heart of Manhattan, or or elections in Ohio, you go to the place you're addressing. What do you glean from that? Is it the simple physical relationship to intellectual engagement? Or have you found that there's a part of that experience that makes it into the work visually? Both. It's sensual, it's auditory, it's instinctual, it's observational. Uh, started to show up formally while I was at Cooper asking people questions about domestic workers in public space. And then for a while, while I was deferred, I was working as an assistant for this woman who had, um, who had a, a housekeeper. And I started, you know, pulling her aside and trying to like informally interview her on the steps of this big house we worked in. She was an undocumented immigrant and did not want to be, she didn't want to, she, I couldn't tape it. I couldn't record our conversations in any way. And once she knew that I could draw a photo realistically, she also wouldn't allow me to draw any pictures while she spoke to me. And then while at MIT studying at the Kennedy School with a, an amazing scholar and public advocate named Martha Alter Chen, often referred to as the mother of the gray market. She's like the, the, the go-to person, you know, how, however many times however in however many years, when like a, there, there'll be like these spurts of articles that come out about like the, the temporary state of the of black market economy and gray market economy. She's the go-to person. And I didn't know this when I, when I took the class, but I ended up learning who she, who she was. And during that time I started to see, well, I had never been in a class or in a space of study or, or conversation that was about global economic policy. I was the only visual artist in this class. Lots of like architects and you know future NGO workers and as is notorious with the with the Kennedy School the strong likelihood of future dictators all kinds of people were in this room and we're we're talking about the movement of people speculation capital and formal and informal economies and the nature of punishment that is so often that so often falls upon the heads of the most vulnerable you know people who for for whom subsistence economics are needed for survival very rarely did we have any pictures you know, so I had like this huge binder of all these readings and it was all about like words and numbers. We focused a lot on South America, actually, a lot on Peru, but there were never any pictures. And I started to realize that the stories that were being told were patterns that I recognized in my own family about 
things that didn't get talked about in great detail, which was my elders, my elders work as uh, domestics in Texas and California, you know, working under the table for wealthy people. One of the families, I recognized their name on buildings at Yale, uh, sections of buildings at Mass Mocha. I know that must be the same family, but like, you know, so like working for really wealthy people who enjoy social protections of the formal economy, benefiting from the avoidance of taxation that they get to enjoy while employing people informally. The people, people who, when they, when, when they retire, have, have no social safety net. So then, you know, that was when I started to like see people in research language. And then that's when I realized that I needed to, I needed to, to conduct some interviews with the only, the only surviving child of those elders, my adoptive mother, the one who was old enough to go to work with them in people's homes and take care of children while they cleaned and while they cooked, which she hated doing. But, um, you know, I talked to all of my aunties and they were like, you need to talk to Aver. You need to talk to Aver. I don't remember. You need to talk to Aver. And I'm in Cambridge and she's in Los Angeles. And so I started facilitating interviews with her over Skype using like really raggedy Skype recording technology at the time, you know, really glitchy, you know, full of problems, you know. So every time I thought I was getting closer to uh, a formal practice of, of what I now would, are, would describe as, uh, you know, uh, creating a firm and, and reliable expanded archive of these narratives of public space as they're experienced by individuals and families. I just kept running into more and more technological problems that ended up influencing the aesthetics of what ends up being like an artistic response. So, yeah, so that's, it, that's that's when I started to recognize that there was like formal value. This wasn't just me talking to people. You know what I mean? Like this wasn't just me like asking asking questions and not remembering most of it. These were no longer casual conversations. And that's when I started to realize that expanding research beyond what's been historically documented through whatever discipline I'm looking at, whether it be through the words of progressive economists or historians, uh, Africana study, like whatever it is that these conversations with living people about some of these issues and terms that the scholars and academics cover that they have that I have to document them somehow and 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 that they that they are the key to the next step that leads to whatever the work is actually going to be and I started to get comfortable then with not always knowing how the work was going to turn out I became less angsty and more trusting that the things that I observed and the questions that I asked, that it was actually up to me to create like systems, systems for myself of expanding these archives and trusting that the clues would come from there to tell me how I was supposed to visualize this story, whatever the story was. I trust that if I'm going into a situation with my eyes open, like knowing that I have a, a specific question about an issue of public concern, be it labor, transportation, education, housing, electoral politics, that, yeah, that the answers will come and then I will start to know what to, what to do with them. And something that I've been wanting, something that I've been wanting since I became obsessed with Ad Reinhardt in 2006 was to figure out a way or be introduced to a way that would be unique for me of embedding issues of public concern into the making of a thing and being okay with the nature of that embedding, not always revealing like an immediately decodable narrative language. Everything wasn't always going to be completely like sewed up like a, a Rivera, you know, like I wasn't, I, it wasn't actually my job to always show 
how the entire machine worked. Like I wanted to arrive at a place where these concerns could start to be felt as essential and not necessarily told in a way that was didactic and absolute. So the way in which that manifests itself in the works on view at the Wexner, we'll have images on Man Podcast and details on manpodcast.com, of course, but the works are, are built up in layers, as, as you described. And so among those layers are things like Barack Obama campaign signs and literature, a Democratic Party sample ballot from Franklin County, Ohio. I think Franklin is, is Columbus's county. A flyer, a graphic representation of candidates endorsed by a group affiliated with the NAACP and, and so on. You also linked pretty darn current histories to your construction of these works. So, for example, Ohio made headlines this past summer for establishing a new limit on ballot drop boxes at the time. And I, it's possible that a court has stepped in and changed this between when the policy was made and when this show airs, that only one location was going to be available to deposit ballots in each county. So, well, and, and other states in just the last week have have established the same state of Texas, for example. The work is about Ohio, but while Texas has just established the policy, it happens everywhere. The specific example is Harris County, Texas, Houston's county, 1,800 square miles, 4.7 million people, one ballot drop box. So Love Roller Coaster, the title of your show at the Wexner and the title of one of the works in the, rec in the Wexner argues that this voter suppression is is no isolated incident, but the latest in a long history of voter suppression going back generations. So one of the ways you build this argument in the work, one of the ways you call attention to these histories in the work is by layering material, um, not just physical material, but references to past and references to present, arguing that they are all, visually arguing that they are all of a piece. They are not separate and separated, that the history continues. How did you decide that layering material was a technique you wanted to use? Does that stem from your interest in printmaking or from somewhere else? That's printmaking. I mean, that's all, that's all, that's all of these disciplines really. I mean, this is something that happens in printmaking. It's something that happens in painting. It's, these are, these are principles of painting in engaging the figure and the ground, the figure ground relationship. It's also like physically, it's physically, uh, like, uh, it's, it's a matter of sculpture as well. And of course, it's metaphorical and ideological. But yeah, I mean, the, the layering of electoral materials was a discovery that happened with the show at, the Zuckerman Museum of Art at Kennesaw State University, Interstate Love Song. It's a song about lies, lies on the interstate. And that's what I found in digging around and visualizing that history, you know, like the, 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 the current conditions, but the current conditions of that, that story or the, the story of that place that, that, that really um, crystallized for that, for that show that was greatly influenced by uh, the book, written by historian Kevin M. Cruz, White Flight, Atlanta, and the Making of Modern Conservatism. And then I ended up being invited to come out there to Georgia to make work. And I took that book with me and finally read it cover to cover. And it ended up being about the place, like not just Atlanta, but the surrounding suburbs and the, the story of Cobb County, which is where 
where the show actually took place. The show wasn't in Atlanta. It was like way out in the, in the, in a suburb. But it was during that time that I think she's still in this position, but she's, she was the director of the Legacy Museum at Tuskegee University, uh, John Teal Robinson. She was like super influential around my thinking about how that work was going to turn out. There, there are these moments of anxiety, or at least they were then. I didn't feel this anxiety. So mm, I felt other anxieties about the Ohio show, actually, which were really COVID related. But at the time, I was really like, you know, I have this is my first museum show happening in Georgia. And it's a museum solo show. And I do not know what this work is supposed to look like. I just didn't know how this was going to happen. Like with me not being from Georgia and because of my teaching schedule, not able to go there and be in residence for a few months to absorb the space. So John Teal really like kept me cool and she, she kept me in a place of uh, like faith and belief that I would see what I was supposed to see and I would do what I was supposed to do, <laughs> that I would learn what I was supposed to learn while I was there on these brief trips that I took. And during one of these trips on a dusty back road in Alabama, uh, we met in front of a, in front of a convenience store and she gave me a bag full of the electoral materials, these, these, you know, like mailers that she had received what what then became anchored historically as the most expensive congressional race in U.S. history between John Ossoff and Karen Handel. In, in 2016, Karen Handel enjoyed the full thrust of the the, the whole the whole like apparatus supporting uh, the Trump nomination. And John Ossoff was a young man who was very, very much known to be a protege of Representative John Lewis. And Cobb County, again, one could drive through that entire town and not recognize its political import. Luckily, I had Kevin Cruz's book with me and, and people who would talk to me about, about what really went on there. It's like a firewalled county where historically Black people are not supposed to live. And one politician, someone, a young person that I met outside of an art opening in Atlanta who was very generous with me, he was a, a volunteer for the Ossoff campaign. I remember him telling me that there was some local politician that very, very brazenly said on the record that Cobb County is not a county that is supposed to go to any protege of John Lewis. Like, that's not what the county is for. Historically, this is a place that innovated the county unit voting system, the, the formalized practice of counting the votes of less populated rural areas as more valuable than voting blocks in more densely populated urban areas, which after Reconstruction were increasingly populated by Black and brown people, Black freed Black people and their descendants. So this, this campaign was a, was a big deal, and it dropped all of this paper on all of these people to try to move the needle in one way or the, or the other. So John Teal, for the first time ever in her own personal history, had this stockpile of election materials that she didn't throw away. And so she gave them to me. And so I brought them back here to Cambridge with me and they sat for a while. I didn't, I still didn't know what they were, what was supposed to come of it. I didn't know. I just started placing them on the wall. And then they started to, this placement started to reveal a pattern, like a, a, a an aesthetic logic. And once all of the pieces were placed, all of the uh, election materials were placed, I then had to figure out how they were going to stay together. It became as much a structural exploration as it was like a, a, a metaphorical experiment. It ended up becoming this piece that's called Still Remains, a song from that track list. And I loved it. So with Still Remains, I had collected a couple of containers full of Georgia red clay 
and turned that into a mixture and started embedding it into uh, using using like lines to embed it into this shape that had manifested from the collapse and layering of these election materials. And the way that I started to think about it was that at the heart of all this, I'm simply trying to understand the system. All of these things, whether or not we are the kind of people who like wish to acknowledge that we are systemically influenced by circumstances that are larger than us. In my heart of hearts, I'm simply, when I'm asking these questions, I'm trying to understand the system. I'm trying to understand how the personal becomes public around a given uh, issue that governs public space. Like, I don't know. It's not about me knowing from the outset that I was simply trying to affirm the shape of a thing. I was trying to figure a thing out and identify its systemic pattern, however bizarre that pattern might might end up being aesthetically and responding in truth to the shape of the thing as it revealed itself to me. And so I knew that with the Ohio work being about the electoral process, it felt like an opportunity to try it again and to try it with more, not blind faith, but like direction and agency. And more layer, more layers of history too. I mean, the, the, there's more complication within the work at the Wexner. I wasn't able to go to Ohio and spend time in Columbus because of the COVID-19 restrictions on travel. Instead, I ended up coming up with a plan for the work with the curatorial staff, really spearheaded by Kristen Helmick Brunette and uh, the educational practice director, Dion Custer Edwards, who helped me get what I needed. You know, I was, and I was, I was definitely being influenced by the work that I was doing with my research team the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University, where my show there has been postponed, but we continue to do interviews with people. We continue to facilitate interviews with people that I had hoped to have for a series of teach-ins about education, desegregation, litigation after 1955, after Brown II. And we basically, like, we're coming up with a, with a pivot methodology that really formalized this, this asking people questions to figure out what the work is supposed to be in a way that that hadn't happened before and really wouldn't have happened if we hadn't been forced into lockdown because the interviews became these recordings the recordings were tra- we transcribed them with the help of Rachel Vogel our student copy editor and now they're they're almost ready for for print, for printing you know these thousand word excerpts with uh with eight people uh lawyers advocates experts technologists humanists talking about the the long-term implications of the Brown litigation and it's the attacks against the Brown litigation. So much of that coming from that ideological nucleus of Cobb County, Georgia. So yeah, it's just, it all winds back to each other. But, but the, but I mentioned that because that practice influenced, we had, we had to move very fast to make a bunch of decisions about how the Ohio work was even going to be able to be made. Like I had to find a temporary studio here, which was really just a, a twist of lucky fate that the people at Gallery 263 in Cambridge allowed me to use their empty gallery as a studio space. But, you know, so the question was, my question remained, how do I get Ohio here since I can't go to Ohio? So it was Kristen and Megan Cavanaugh and Dion, who are Ohioans, who told me about the Lucy Depp Park, which I haven't been able to visit myself, but it was a significant site on the Underground Railroad in Ohio. And the bell that was used to ring to alert people to hide when marauders were coming to kidnap them and return them to slavery, that, that warning bell is still preserved and still functions. You know, it's very rare. I feel like it's rare that, there, that there's a, a preserved site 
when we have preserved sites in this country that that are that are sites where people fought against and somehow survived the ravages of white supremacy as like nationalist identity in the United States in all of the ways in, in all of its uh all all the ways that it's so violently employed like it's it's very rare you know so often these places exist in stories and you have to get to you have to get to those stories before someone dies you know we have all of these occurrences on Long Island with the Shinnecock people in Texas and Sugarland you know where all these burial grounds are constantly being found of of native people of 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 black people and they're found during the process of urban sprawl development you know the the goal is always to suspend the dis, the the actual disregard for the people who are for the people and the families the the generations who are tied to those people who are whose whose remains are found and just to keep building it's so rare that there's actually a site where you can where where we can know that this is what happened here people people who were seeking seeking that that democratic ideal seeking not to be abused who bravely fought who you know like it's it's very rare that we have these that that we have these sites that are historicized for us that are locations like physical geographic locations where people fought and survived the fight against white supremacy in the United States and so the Lucy Depp Park is one of those places and I learned about it through these women who took over the curatorial guidance for this show and they very very generously made time to go out there to the park and to dig up pounds and pounds of this soil and bag it up and box it up and send it to me. So my care packages were not only the the multiples. God, I love those care packages. The the multiples of uh of election materials, election information, uh, voter information materials that they sent me. Um the the fact that there were multiples was was really cool because I was able to experiment uh, I was able to experiment with the surface in ways that I hadn't been able to before. Um, but these, but the, the materials from Ohio not only came from the, the Wexner people themselves, but friends of the Wexner who themselves had these years long collections of materials like 2012 Democratic National Convention paddles. The Barack Obama sign is a convention floor sign. And I've I've been I've been so thirsty to get my hands like we see these images of people holding up like, you know, thousands of people holding up these signs. And I always wonder, where do they all go? Can I have them? And with this project, Kristen collected all this stuff and sent it to me. And that included the Lucy Depp Park soil. I mean, yeah, for me, it's it's really, really important and meaningful that the soil, the soil from a site uh, where black people resisted and survived and helped other black people to resist and survive on native land where na- where native people had had been massacred and rounded up and put into concentration camps you know like like all of these contradictions to this rhetorical uh notion of democracy that we are taught that it's very simply just like located firmly in conversation with this earthen material from Mount Penteli. There's so much resolution that happens in these pieces. I'm really, I'm really, really satisfied with them because of that. But so much of that is just this, this magic, you know, like the way that you're talking about these democracy quilts and, and seeing Purifoy in the work. It's this, it's, it's this magic that I couldn't, I couldn't possibly have controlled. I had to, I had to open up my hands and receive. You also use physical earth from sites in your work. So the works on view at the Wexner include soil from underground railroad sites in Ohio, but also pentelic marble, which is, I guess, to shorthand dramatically here, uh, marble dust from Greece. 
are those references to both sites of Amer- you know specific sites of American history and their relationship to democracy or not and to what we consider a founding site of global democracy. Did you want both of those, the the ideal and the manifestation within the works? Absolutely. That's it. (laughs) Is that why? And and, and then I understand how you used the site soil. It provides actual structure within, within the compositions. You can see it on the surface of the works. How does the Pentelic marble work as a a material? And I guess as a nerd, I'm sort of asking that formally as well as, (laughs) um, as well as metaphorically. The the marble dust, I consider it, I fell in love with the marble dust under an umbrella of the same logic that I've used with the soil from American sites. That was another like, you know, like, like mind blowing, mind blown emoji when I was in Athens hanging out with Edie Splitakis and Miranda Lash and Aristides Logisetis when they were telling me that all of the marble in all of the places, like the sidewalk marble in Athens is Pentelic. It's not just, it's just, it's not just marble from Greece. It's, it's marble from Mount Pentelicus. All of that marble came from the same mountain just outside of the city of Athens, Southwest. And that all of the marble or that is used for the, reconstruction and preservation of the Acropolis monuments, they too all come from that same mountain. So we would we were spending time out there looking at these structures and they're, you know, like they're the places where they're they're the places where you can see where the newer marble, where the fresher marble or the younger marble, the more recently quarried marble is bright white. And somehow, man, you know, talk about public work that is just mind blowing that they like they're it's like they're, they're these uh these 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 pockets of bright white marble that fill missing chunks of older mar- marble and you see how they how their colors interact you know the older the, the older ancient marble is like yellow and brown and sometimes stained green you know it's uh they they explained to me how the 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 changing of air pollution over many over many generations also like hastens the, t- the deterioration of the ancient marble, but that like there, there are rules about, there are, there are archeological rules about what even can be used to preserve these monuments and to restore them. And all of that marble comes from Mount Pentelli. It's like the literal earthen material that makes the structures we, that we're taught here are the foundations of what we're supposed to experience as an American democratic process. And and they are, it's the, it's the marble that makes the material of the monuments that our monuments here mimic, physically mimic. So when I think about, when I think about these stories, these histories that my questions about these, about law and about transportation, about labor, about housing, I mean, I think, I think that there are questions that, that anyone and everyone should be and could be asking because these are areas of, of life and governance that implicate us all. My desperation for uh, understanding around how they've been used to pervert the experience of life for people targeted for oppression historically, it's urged. I, fe- I see that we are all implicated as a black person in this country. I don't have the, I don't, I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I have the option to ignore. I seek understanding for for many reasons that are that are very deeply rooted. I I would like to think that that I would have compassion enough to see that something's obviously wrong, 
And I, I, I would hope that I would just be a person who would, who would like want to find out why. But I do, I do recognize now a few more years out of like just complete naivete that not everybody cares. But in the, the patterns that I've seen in all of these issues, as, as they lead back to issues of law, the word of the law, the implementation of law, the, like the rationalized breaking of the law, the selective, the selective employment of the law to protect or to abuse, that all roads in all, in these major stories, specifically having started with Brown versus the Board of Education going down this road, all roads lead back to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court in the United States is made to look like the Parthenon. So when I realized that there was a quarry where I could go and see where all of this marble came from, where this idea is supposed to have come from, I was beside myself with excitement. Thankfully, Edie's uh, organized a trip right before I left Athens, like I think two, two or like maybe like four days before I had to leave to the, Dion- the Dionysos quarry on Mount Penteli, where everything comes from. Uh, we were taken by a really wonderful foreman uh, named Sotiris. So he he told us about the quarry and then he put us in his pickup truck and he drove us down into the quarry. We parked and then he walked us into this gaping hole, this huge one of these huge holes dug out in the quarry. And the first thing that I remember seeing as we walked into this marble cave was this perfect pile of pure white marble dust that was in this mound which was odd that there was this, there was no hole nearby. Like he didn't even understand where that mound could have come from. One of the people who was with us gave me her purse. She emptied her purse, like a bagu bag type of purse, like a like totally collapsible cloth purse. She emptied out all of her stuff because I was like kicking myself that I came. We we had to drive quite a ways from the city of Athens. It was quite an, it was quite a feat to like organize this for Edie's. I came all that way with nothing, not no backpack, no purse. I don't, I don't know what I was thinking, but I came with nothing, no bucket. I had nothing to take anything out of there with. So I was given a purse and I filled that purse with as much of that perfect, you know, rodent feces free marble dust as I could get into this woman's purse and then proceeded to get it out of the country, legally get it out of the country. It ended up being, um, I think I moved like, like 10.5 kilos of marble dust in her purse. And uh, yeah, we had to go through all sorts of jump balls, through all sorts of hoops because it's just me it's just me carrying like white powder in a bag and then packing it up into into containers to to ship out of the country and it's completely unidentified I didn't think about any of that you know I was just I was only thinking about like the material and and how meaningful it was inside of this logic that had been developed around site specificity and earthen matter. So like how to how to actually identify it chemically, formally to to move it legally all came came after. And luckily we were able to do it. So I brought it back to the country. I used it for the work in Forever My Lady. Forever My Lady is a title that's a nod to my favorite one of my favorite boy bands in middle school, Jodeci, a group out of North Carolina. Yeah, so for Forever My Lady, the marble dust is embedded into the surfaces in the same way that the Georgia red clay is embedded into still remains as geometric response to the shape of the thing as it reveals itself to me. The last piece that I made for that show, Temple for Bakari, Shady Grove Church Bombing, in honor of a young man from Texas named Bakari Henderson, who was murdered on the island of Zaikinthos. That is the only one that I troweled marble dust on the entire surface. 
not just as a line formation after things had already been defined, but I, but I painted into everything that's painted there is painted into, into this pentelic marble dust, you know, obviously arguing that Bakari, like what if Bakari had had a temple? What if Bakari's life had been as, as regarded as, as these holy temples in this place? He wouldn't have been killed in the street for taking a picture with a, a white Serbian woman. He was just traveling with friends. He was he he was an ambitious young man who had who who was uh who was loved by his friends and he and his friends went on a went on a, a trip to Greece with uh like creative machinations among themselves about creating a, a, a fashion design company. He was seeking to be a creative entrepreneur in collaboration with his friends. And he was very young, you know, like I know that I know now that our brains don't really stop developing until we're 25. He wasn't even he wasn't even 22. I think he was 21 when this happened. So he was a very young man, like fresh out of college and exploring the world as is so often, you know, the, the, the appropriate tale of a young person, you know, seeking to define themselves in the world. And they were just out there having fun. The island of that, you know, the, the, there are different Greek islands with like different different like notorious cultures, you know, sometimes to the chagrin of the native people who live there. But Zykinthos is a, is one of those pleasure islands, you know, lots of bars, lots of restaurants, people go there to party and have a good time. And that's what they were there doing. And, you know, he didn't make it back. We talked earlier about how you built the structural geometry of still remains from the placement of campaign printed material on the walls of your studio. There are constructional, something more than compositional, lines that are in the works at the Wexner and that really are in a lot of your work that often have right angles, but just kind of zig and zag around. So that could all come from still remains. I understand that. But the the, the, the shapes and the way they exist within the rectangle um, also remind me of democracy quilts, the way, the way democracy quilts were made and then the way in which political and historical messages were embedded into democracy quilts. Were they an interest of yours or a source material of yours? No, but talk to me, Tyler. I like it when you talk like that. This is the stuff I live for, you know? It's like this is this is the magic I rely upon. This is why... This is why I continue to believe that visual art language is my first language, that everything else is an imposition. And all this, like even the pursuit for understanding around these perversions of democracy and public space and how they filter in all these, into all these ways that define public space for us. I mean, that's, that's really the influence of, of, of muralism, you know, like muralism and then eventually group material and are and, you know, these people that I learned about on the East Coast, but, you know, asking the question, what is the actual nature of public space and how does it, how does it manifest beyond the built environment, beyond an additive practice of, of, of the plastic arts on existing architecture that is completely vulnerable to intervention after the artist is done. Like, this is like, how, how else do we experience public space? And, and, and I recognize that Largely, definitely largely through the influence of, of my best friend, uh, Nia Evans, but it's, it's so much of that is through policy and it's, it, it's already embedded in everything. And I just didn't always see it before. All of that is like, you know, like research driven and it's, you know, issues of, uh, practices of, of scholarship and question asking and, and archive exploration and archive expansion. But the, the compulsion just to make an image, 
like the need to make art, that thing that I couldn't control, that the, the, the compulsion to make art, the, the, the desire to see visual art, to have visual experience and to ask questions about like how things are made and why things are made and who made them and who gets to see them and when and why and what is the purpose of a thing in a private space? What's the purpose of a thing in a public space? That's where magic and intuition continue to live for me. I get so much more after a work is done listening to people like you and people like the security guard team that talked to me at the, at the Wexner Center that influenced my, my image making decisions for those paintings. When, when people, people tell me more of what they see opens up more. It just, it just lets me know that, that I, that, that something happened between me and the making of the work that was right. That all of these intentions that I have had, these issues of pure angst and discomfort around how to embed issues of public concern into a surface that they actually, this was, this was never me thinking alone. As, as lonely as it felt often, this was never me thinking alone, that this is tied to methodologies of embedding, embedding symbols and systems and illumination into surfaces that are inviting for people to look at, that there are all these art histories across painting, across quilting, sculpture, printmaking. There are all of these histories of image making for viewerships known and unknown that I am linked to. It makes me feel very, very much a part of something that I always, I just always felt I was a part of it. I didn't always know how. We'll have a link to Lucy Depp Park on the show page on manpodcast.com. Tamashi Jackson, thanks so much. Thank you. The Nasher Sculpture Center is ready to welcome you back. Kick off the fall season with a stroll through the Nasher Garden and visit today to see Barry X. Ball remaking sculpture, the first U.S. Museum survey of works that combine 3D scanning technologies with traditional sculpture techniques. Whether online or in person, find new ways to enhance your visit, from time ticketing, weekly music performances, to expanded digital content on the Nasher app. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. Since the outbreak of COVID-19, thousands of people around the globe have taken on challenges from Getty and other museums to recreate famous works of art at home. Astonishing in their creativity, wit, and ingenuity, these photographs remind us of the power of art to unite us and bring joy during troubled times. The new book, Off the Walls, Inspired Recreations of Iconic Artworks, celebrates these imaginative recreations, bringing highlights from the Getty Museum Challenge together in one whimsical, irresistible volume. Getty Publications will donate all profits from the sale of this book to the charity Artist Relief. Get your copy at shop.getty.edu. Welcome back. Next up, curator Stephen Wicks, who joins me to discuss the exhibition Buford Delaney and James Baldwin Through the Unusual Door. It's at the Knoxville Museum of Art through October 25th. The exhibition uses over 50 paintings and works on paper, as well as unpublished archival material, to examine the nearly four-decade-long relationship between the Knoxville-born Delaney and Baldwin. Stephen Wicks, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. How did Baldwin and Delaney meet and over the course of a 38-year relationship, how did they come to be important to each other? It's a great story that Baldwin tells. And Baldwin is responsible for a lot of the great stories that concern Buford Delaney. Basically, there was a friend of Baldwin's who kept telling him 
you need to come meet this artist who lives in Greenwich Village. And I guess after being bothered enough by this friend, Baldwin thought, okay, let me at least check this out and see what's going on here. So according to Baldwin's recount of that encounter, he enters this building, goes up three flights of stairs, and with great reluctance, finds the courage to knock on this door. And the door opens, and he says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, this small man looked at me with these x-ray eyes and basically was able to see into my lungs and liver. And he had just this amazing insight. And it was something that blew Baldwin away. Baldwin says that he walks through Delaney's studio door and he enters this, this world filled with Buford's music and Buford's colors. And he said that it was a moment that forever imprinted on his mind the reality that a black man could be an artist. And it was, it was again, something that forever changed his, his outlook and his direction and his expectations for himself. How big is the age difference between them? And did that manifest itself in terms of their relationship? Were they brother, brother, buddy, buddy, mentor, mentee? How did, how did that work? Roughly 24 years difference, 23 years difference. Cause yeah, notice, I made you, notice that I made you do the math. <laughs> Basically it was, it was mentor protege. And, and Baldwin is the first one to, to, to say that. He, he comes out and basically credits Delaney for taking him under his wing, for being a surrogate father. Several of Baldwin's essays and, and publications are dedicated to Delaney. Some of the major characters are based on Delaney. And so uh, it's, it's very clear the powerful role that Buford Delaney played in Baldwin's development. But Baldwin is also a powerful figure of influence to Delaney. And uh, Delaney based a number of works on Baldwin, did many portraits of him. And so uh, to me, that's what made this such a compelling show to, to pursue because those points of intersection occur so frequently and with such great importance on both sides for Baldwin and Delaney. I think as we talk, we're going to get to some good examples of how they influenced each other, I guess, not just within their work, but in, in, in their lives in ways that fed into the work. But let's, let's start with some, some paintings. When did Delaney first begin to paint and draw Baldwin? How long did it take him to begin doing that once they met? Not long at all. The first painting that's been attributed as an image of, of Baldwin is a painting entitled Dark Rapture. And it's from roughly 1941, 1940. And it, to me, isn't so much a portrait of Baldwin. It feels to me more like it's an idyllic figure study. There's this, this nude youth sitting on some sort of a structure in this landscape, the strange landscape where we can recognize trees and other landscape features, but the colors and the patterns are straight out of a, an otherworldly vision. And the, the features of this particular figure don't correspond to Baldwin's in any particular way. So 
at this point, my feeling is that this shadowy image of this idyllic youth in some ways maybe reflects the fact that Delaney doesn't yet know who this is or will become and that he sees this, this intriguing potential and uh, that it's, again, really more of a figure study than an actual portrait. The next image that I'm aware of that's a portrait of Baldwin, that's based on Baldwin, is a work that we own. It's a 1944 pastel. And unlike Dark Rapture, this one zooms in on the monumental head of James Baldwin and these uh, large expressive eyes and this confident expression that confronts us directly. And it's as if in that three to four year period between Dark Rapture and this portrait of James Baldwin from 1944, Baldwin has seen the emergence of his protege as a powerful voice for civil rights, uh, as a creative writer on all these different fronts. You can see some formal similarities between the two paintings in that in the, in the earlier work, Delaney is taking pictures from the background, the landscape, the textile on which Baldwin is sitting and brings them into the sitter's face and body, which he does again three or four years later in the pastel. It's almost, you know, the romantic tendency is to think, oh, he was remembering the work from three or four years ago and bring something from it forward. So how many times did Delaney make portraits of or works inspired by or dedicated to Baldwin or dedicated to Baldwin and then dededicated <laughs> to Baldwin in one example? Yeah, I think that no one's actually sure how many. I know that uh, various scholars have cited, I think that the way I usually hear it described is there are dozens of works either inspired by, dedicated to depicting James Baldwin by Buford Delaney. There, there are a bunch of them in the show and there's one late example of where Delaney had I guess, begun to dedicate a work to Baldwin. I think it was an abstraction, if I remember correctly. And then when Baldwin instead decided to spend his birthday in Puerto Rico, he kind of dededicated it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's uh, what I was able to learn is that Baldwin had made this last minute decision without talking to, to Delaney, that he was going to spend his birthday with his family in Puerto Rico. And I think my suspicion is that Delaney had planned this abstraction as a gift, birthday gift to Baldwin based on the inscription on the back, which read happy birthday. And it has a number, Jimmy Love Buford. And what happens is Baldwin's over there for his birthday. And then by the time he comes back to Paris where Delaney is, he's there only for a civil rights march, and then he's immediately jetting over to the United States for more civil rights appearances. And so I think Delaney just at a certain point just threw up his hands and said, you know what, I need to send this to one of my shows. I'll have to send him a birthday present later. And so he ended up scratching out that uh, beautiful heartfelt dedication on the back of the canvas. So we'll come back to another portrait or two later. I think one of the interesting moments in the catalog and the progression of paintings is when in the mid-1950s Delaney turns to abstraction. And appreciating that, that Delaney's 1950 fellowship at Yaddo was important, in the catalog you suggest that there are some ways Baldwin himself probably contributed to Delaney's 
shift into abstract painting. What about their shared interest in music did you find interesting and meaningful? I think it was really related to the fact that both of them had this profound early interest in music, particularly in African-American music. They loved jazz. They would sometimes go on stage and perform together. The notion of rhythm and movement as it pertains to jazz structure, you can see in the work of, of both men. And for Delaney, you know, one of the things that I've tried to argue against in, in this exhibition, in this catalog, is this notion that he's in New York for the first half or so of his career. And then once he leaves New York, his urban scenes more or less are left behind and he suddenly becomes this abstract painter in Paris. No, in fact, uh, his, his career evolution is, is far more complicated and less linear than that. And so one of the things that I think is really a key factor is, in many cases, Baldwin. When the two of them are having conversations in front of this big window in his first ever suburban studio in Clamart, it's a studio where Baldwin helped him reside because he noticed that Delaney was hitting a rough patch psychologically. And he thought that this calmer, more natural surroundings would be really good for Delaney. And the two of them sit there by this window, morning, noon, and night, as the weather changes, different times of day. And they notice how this window appears to be this universe of color and, and, and shifting pattern. And he sees this window as a catalyst in Delaney's quote-unquote metamorphosis into freedom. And this becomes a point where Delaney doesn't necessarily suddenly become an abstract painter, but his hard-edged shapes of his earlier urban scenes and some of the more uh, rigid geometry, it all seems to explode. And it's in this explosion, this free abstract atmospheric brushwork takes over. And it's all about light and nuance and this expressive movement of this radiance that Delaney was always looking for underneath the surface of visible reality. Yeah, and I think the catalog essay also kind of pointed to a confluence of, of, of two things, how music and their shared interest in jazz and gospel music too, for that matter, inform Delaney's abstractions. But the window in outside Paris was interesting and valuable to Delaney at the same time he was visiting the stained glass windows in great French cathedrals like Chartres and, and Notre Dame. And there's this moment in, in the essay where all of these things happen together. Are there a couple of favorite paintings in the show where we kind of see those influences make it onto the canvas? Stained glass interest, the interest in reflective surfaces actually goes back to uh, pretty early on where Baldwin tells this remarkable story of the two of them walking the streets of Greenwich Village and it, I guess, had been raining and they stop at a corner and Baldwin sees Delaney staring off into space looking downward and Baldwin is wondering what's going on and Delaney says, look, do you see it? Baldwin wonders what he's referring to, and he says, look again. And then he, he follows Delaney's eyes down to this oily puddle in the streets. 
and there is this reflection of the adjacent urban landscape in this puddle and it's swirling and it's transformed by this oily residue and Baldwin says from that moment on my creative vision was never the same I was always looking for this extraordinary radiance and beauty in the ugliest and grubbiest places and it was something that was a gift to me that forever inspired me one of the reasons for the strange coloration in that 1944 pastel of baldwin is in fact the fact that i think it's the color of that oily puddle reflecting into his features so that that pastel is genuinely delaney bringing baldwin's story and baldwin's portrait together into one image so you see Baldwin's features as if he's staring at that puddle. And so one of the points that I made was that this swirling reflective surface was an early sign of Delaney's interest in reflective surfaces in all walks of life, whether it's a, a store window or it's his studio window, or at Yado, he is there as part of this uh, creative retreat with poets and other artists where does he go to make a pastel composition? He, of course, finds this greenhouse, which is a virtual cathedral of light and, and glass. And he goes in there and produces this remarkable composition, again, devoted to the effects of light and color within a reflective environment. There's also a series of late 50s, early 60s abstractions in which water and the way color kind of exists in water comes into the work in a different way. There's an inescapable parallel in Delaney's biography, of course. What is that dramatic moment in Delaney's biography? And do you think that that traumatic experience comes into the work and those, those watery abstractions from that period? Well, in 1961, July 1961, he is traveling, as he often did, outside of Paris. Uh, he and Baldwin both were interested in, in getting a different perspective on the world by going to different places. Delaney is off the coast of Patras, Greece, on a boat. Uh, he doesn't know how to swim. His biographer is basically raising the case that at this particular point, the voices that Delaney often was plagued by were getting the better of him. He jumps overboard. It's, it's certainly not going to end well, but there happens to be a fisherman who sees Delaney fall overboard. He rescues him. And then Delaney's friends are able to, to get him back to Paris. He is able to recover. And it sounds as if what happened was a doctor basically advises Delaney to get back to work, get back in the studio. And Delaney begins to experiment with watercolors, very loose watercolors that are abstract and often involve only one or two colors and these swirling marks. And Delaney refers to these as his Rorschach tests. And these watercolors, I think, are very clearly a reflection of that, that experience. He's trying to come to terms with it. I've even come across a small sketch in one of his many sketchbooks that corresponds to the shadowy coastline off the coast of Patras, Greece. It's dated to December 1961, so it'd be maybe six months after the event. He's thinking back to what happened. So you see a number of compositions now where 
it appears to be Delaney's musing about light as it passes through bodies of water or reflects off the surface of water. And throughout his career, light was always something he was pursuing as an artist. There are some great examples from just about this time of yellow abstractions. It's, it's a horrible phrase, but, but you know, the, the, there are these very brushy, short paintings on, on, on paper um, and on canvas for that matter. And they're very yellow and you make the argument that they are kind of abstractions based on the way light dances on the top of, of water and reflects. And that's an idea, a visual idea, that Delaney also translates into some of his portraits and portrait referencing works, such as the great and famous painting of Marian Anderson that's in Virginia, in Richmond. Do you have any understandings of how Delaney took those yellow full field abstractions and managed to bring portraiture into them? Because it seems like quite a move. Well, one of the things I wanted to mention is some of those yellow abstractions. If you look closely at, at some of the ones, we have a couple in our collection. Delaney often would paint those on top of either a black paper or a piece of watercolor paper that had been painted very dark. And it almost corresponds to this letter that Baldwin wrote of Delaney and his journey through life, how he basically came out of the darkness of where he was born and raised and was constantly moving toward the light. It's as if these compositions begin in darkness and then Delaney in his search for radiance brings them into the light through the addition of layers of brighter color as he gets further and further toward the surface. It also goes back to Delaney's interest in finding that same radiance in people around him. There's a, a portrait of James Baldwin from 1965 that's in our exhibition. And if you look closely, it's a fairly descriptive portrait of Baldwin's face. In fact, it's based on a May 17th, 1963 Time magazine cover that Delaney ends up, of course, transforming in his own original voice. But if you look at Baldwin's pupils, they're not black. They're the same golden yellow as this yellowy atmosphere around him. There are even some portraits that we see of Baldwin from 1957 and other periods where Baldwin appears to be depicted seated in a chair, an armchair, but Delaney has gone back in and painted out the furniture so that it appears that Baldwin is this otherworldly figure hovering in this radiant color environment. So it takes references to the visible world, physical reality, and eventually those references began to become less, less important, less meaningful to Delaney. And in some of the other portraits that you refer to, it's as if that colorful atmospheric abstraction that we see emerging when he moves to that suburban studio in Clamar, it, it continues to stay with him as part of his signature brushwork. And he uses it to engulf his sitters in this, this environment of light. Delaney's last portrait of Baldwin comes along in 1971. Today, it's in the collection of the Clark Atlanta University Art Museum, where it was a bequest of, of, of James Baldwin. It is, in some ways, hark, harkens back to the portrait from 30 years earlier. It's frontal, it's straightforward. 
the background is, is quiet and it kind of a yellow Holbein-esque, if you will. What do we know about the circumstances of, of this portrait, including how Baldwin came to own it and how it came to get to Clark Atlanta? I know that it's a painting that Baldwin owned for years when he was living in the south of France at St. Paul de Vence. He moved out of Paris, much to Delaney's chagrin in 1970, buys this medieval villa. And there are photographs showing Baldwin in his study with this painting uh, on the wall behind him. It's not an especially uh, exact likeness, but again, Delaney really wasn't concerned with that. He was always more interested in painting an idea that was in his mind at the time. And the muse for that idea might look very different physically, but again, Delaney was always looking beneath the surface. In many cases, when he painted Baldwin, he was capturing a degree of beauty in Baldwin that he saw that Baldwin never saw in himself. Baldwin often felt as if he was ugly and Delaney never felt that way. And so I think this is one of those portraits where you get the sense that Delaney is, is painting what he felt about his, his protege, his friend. It's elegant and he looks like a model. <laughs> right. And, and again, I, that's, that's my feeling in, in almost every Baldwin portrait. He covers, Delaney covers so much ground in, in, in stylistically and in terms of the subject matter when he paints Baldwin. There's so many different things going on in each portrait and they're so dissimilar. It's, it's fascinating to me, when, which is part of why I wanted to include in this exhibition as many of those Baldwin portraits by Delaney as possible. The, the two lines of green on his blazer or jacket are bravura. Racing stripes. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. They're really great. Stephen Wicks, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.